Well, if I gave you a piece of paper this morning with this sentence on there, Jesus is my blank, what word would you write in that blank? I've been thinking about that for the last few days because if you gave me a piece of paper and said, John, I want you to fill in the blank, Jesus is my blank, I thought, now what word would I put in there? Certainly, I would write the word Savior, and I think probably that would be the first word that came to your mind too because for those of us who are saved, that's who He is. He has forgiven us, saved us, makes it possible for us to go to heaven when we die. So that would be a great word to put in there. Maybe you would write the word Lord. Not only is Jesus our Savior, but He is our Lord. Maybe you would write healer. Jesus is my healer. Certainly, if you have been healed of an illness, like we're praying that Vanessa will be, you could write that in that blank. Jesus is my healer. Maybe you would write the word deliverer. If you've been in a tight spot or a difficult situation and miraculously, supernaturally, God delivered you out of that and brought you through that, you could write that word, He is my deliverer. Lots of words you could write there. You could write, He's my provider, He's my protector, He's my peace, and on and on we could go. But there's one word that each of us should be able to write in that blank if you think about it. And the word I'm going to give you today is something that we know is true, when I say it, you're going to say, yeah, you're right on that. And yet the truth is we don't often think about Jesus in this way. The fact of the matter is you should be able to look at that sentence and write this down. Jesus is my friend. Because that's who he wants to be in your life. In fact, it says in the Old Testament that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that friend is Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus referred to himself as the friend of sinners. And that makes me feel good because that's who I am. I'm a sinner. And so if Jesus is a friend of sinners, that means Jesus can be my friend. And the fact is, in the day in which we're living, in the time in which we're living, unprecedented in many ways, we need need friends. Uh, there are so many today who feel isolated and they feel cut off and they feel like they're going through life all alone. And if ever we needed a friend, we need a friend right now. I was reading a survey over the weekend about 2,000 American adults who were, who were interviewed and who were surveyed and trying to learn their attitude and their feelings toward this whole idea of friends. And 45% of those interviewed said that they have a difficult time making new friends. Of that 45, 42% said the primary reason is because they're shy and it's hard to, to reach out to somebody they don't know. And for that reason, did you know the average American has not made a new friend in five years? Think about that. Five years and they've not made a new friend. What was also interesting as I read on was to learn that at 23 years of age, our popularity peaks. And however many friends you have when you're 23, that's probably the most friends that you're ever going to have. Now, think back to when you were 23 years of age. Some of you are 23 right now. For me, I have to go back in my mind at least 10 or 12 years to get back to my 23rd year. But when we were 23, we had just gotten out of college. And so at that age, you're not far enough removed from high school that you've lost your high school friend. I mean, at 23, you still have high school friends. You have your college friends. Now you got your first job after college. And so you're making, you're excited about your job and you're meeting all these new friends. Never had a job like that before. And so now you've got all these friends in your new job. And so at 23 years of age, now this is the average person. Some, this doesn't apply to, but for the average, you have all these friends 
in your life. And yet, as you go on in life and you get older and you leave that job and this job, now this job to that job, and now you're far enough away from your high school and college friends that probably you've lost touch with them. You've had so many jobs, you've lost touch with people in previous jobs. Now it's just who you're working with now. And so as we get older, the number of friends, true friends that we have actually goes down. Did you know, I did not know, had I not read this survey, that the average adult American has 16 friends. Now you think about how many friends that you have right now. You may have way more than that. You may have less. The average American has 16 friends. Of that, three of those friends are considered lifelong friends. Another five are considered Maybe not lifelong friends, but the person says, I feel so close to him or so connected to her that I would hang out with him on my free time. I would go eat with him. I'd go to a movie with him. I'd watch a ball game with him. I would hang out with him. The other eight were defined like this. I feel close to these people, these eight people. They're, one of, they're, they're, my, they're half of my 16 friends, but I don't feel close enough that I would ever hang out with them. I wouldn't go anywhere with them. So think about that. The average American has 16 friends, but eight of the 16 you would never do anything with one-on-one, so you're really down to eight. Five of those are not lifelong. You've got three friends, and we know that as we go through life, People die, people move, things happen. And so no wonder do the studies tell us that the average American adult has two people in his or her life that they could bear their soul to. In other words, if you're going through something, you know, a a difficult time in your family life or financially, or maybe you're even struggling emotionally with anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, the average person has two people. You're not going to go to your Sunday school class or your connection group this morning and say, hey, I just want everybody to know I'm having a complete breakdown in every area of my life. You're just not going to do that. But you have these two friends that you could call You could call them at 3 o'clock in the morning and pour your soul out. I hope nobody feels that close to me to call at 3 in the morning. But you could just call them whenever and pour your soul out to them and tell them what you're going through. And so it's interesting as we think about the fact that we have so few friends. We feel disconnected. And even in this service today and to those watching at home, there's some who are listening to my preliminary remarks and you're saying, you know what, John, I can relate to that. I have two or three people in my life that I, could, that I could really bear my soul to, but not many more than that. And I don't have many more than that that I would ever really hang out with or go to a movie with or anything. And so I kind of feel lonely myself. May I make a suggestion today for everybody listening to this message, the wisest thing that we could do would be to make Jesus Christ our best friend. Because Jesus is the only friend we have that not only is he a lifelong friend, he is an eternal life friend. It was interesting, in the study they said the two most important elements or requirements or prerequisites or character traits of a true friend are number one, honesty, and number two, trust. Years ago, there was a movie that came out, and a very popular movie, and in the movie, they talked about the, a circle of trust. And the person was saying to this other person who was about to marry into the family, the, the, the future father-in-law was saying to the future son-in-law, listen, in order for you to be accepted in this family, in order for you to be one of us, you have to be in the circle of trust. You can't lie to us. You can't mis- mislead or deceive us. You have to be honest with us. And so the circle of trust. Well, think about this. Who is more honest than Jesus? Nobody. 
Who is more trustworthy than, than him? Nobody is. And so Jesus meets the requirements. He has the character traits of honesty and trust. And so Jesus Christ should be our greatest friend. And yet, I, I know we know Jesus should be our friend. I know you hear that and you think, yes, Jesus should be our friend. But let me ask you today, would you say that Jesus is your friend? Have you hung out with Jesus in the past seven days? Have you been anywhere intentionally, you and Jesus, just the two of you, you've been with him and you've been in his presence. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons why I know that Jesus is such a great friend, not only from my own life, but I'm talking about from a biblical perspective that I know Jesus is a great friend, is because after the resurrection, now think about this, he was crucified, buried, and risen. He had finished what God sent him to do. Jesus could have gone back to heaven on the morning of the resurrection. The first Easter, he could have gone back to heaven. His work was finished. There was nothing else he had to do to fulfill any uh, Old Testament prophecies or to uh, please God. He had been obedient. And yet Jesus made a decision to stay on this earth for 40 days after the resurrection before returning back to his father. Now, why? Why did Jesus say to himself, I'm going to stay on the earth for a month and 10 days before I go back to heaven? The reason Jesus did that was Jesus had some friends who were in trouble, who had special needs, who were going through a hard time. For example, he had a friend named Mary, and Mary was sad and she was hopeless, thinking that Jesus had not risen from the dead and thinking that he was still dead. And so that was, that was her problem. He had another friend called Thomas, and Thomas was consumed by doubt, doubting Thomas. And so Jesus said to himself, if I go back to heaven now, Thomas will never get out of this doubt. He will never develop into the person I want him to be. And so I've got to spend some extra time with Thomas. Did you know that church history tells us that when it was all said and done, Jesus did get Thomas over his doubt. He brought him to faith. And Thomas ended up moving to India. And he started several churches in India. And tradition tells us that his body is buried on a hill by one of the airports there today in India. But Jesus said, if, if I don't get Thomas out of this doubt, he'll never have an effective ministry. Jesus had another friend named Peter. And Peter had sinned horribly. He had denied that he even knew Jesus. And he felt so guilty and he felt so bad and he felt so shameful. And Peter thought to himself, man, I will never be able to do anything for God. I've committed a big sin denying Christ publicly three separate times. And so really Peter had kind of quit the ministry had gone back into the fishing business, and Jesus said to himself, I can't leave Peter like that. You see, when Peter looked at himself, he saw a failure. But when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw the man who would one day preach that great sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people would be saved. When Peter looked at himself, he saw somebody who had blown it. But when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw somebody who would one day go on to write two books in the New Testament. And so Jesus said to himself, I can't leave Peter feeling guilty and thinking I can't forgive him and that I can't use him. He's got to know my grace is sufficient. My blood will wipe that away. I can give him a new chance. I can give him a, a new beginning. I can give him a, a second chance. And so Jesus said, I've got to stay around a little bit longer to help Mary out of her sadness 
and her loneliness, to help Thomas get through his doubts. I've got to get Peter through all this guilt and get him to move on to what I want him to do with his life. And so Jesus said, I'm going to stay on this earth for 40 days to help my friends. 40 days when he could have been back in heaven celebrating with God, celebrating with the angels, and in a perfect environment. No, he stayed on the earth to help his friends. Now, I want to mention, before we even open our Bible this morning, three things that makes Jesus such a good friend. Number one, he lifts our spirit. When we are down, when we are depressed, when we are discouraged, when we are lonely, when we are sad, Jesus lifts our spirit. Isn't that what we all want in a friend? I mean, I want my friends to be balcony people. I want them to lift me up. I want them to encourage me, not to pull me down and and make me more depressed. I want them to lift me up. Jesus does that. Second thing Jesus does he strengthens our faith. He, he gets us to a place in our life where we're, we're flying above the, uh, the low clouds of doubt. And we're, we're above that and beyond that. And we're living a victorious life. And not only that, Jesus never gives up on us. Now, that's, that's what Peter experienced. Jesus didn't give up on him and Jesus doesn't give up on any of us. And we're all thankful for that. Now, here's what's interesting. And I know you can't read my notes from where you're sitting. And my handwriting's so bad, I can barely read it from where I'm standing. But... When I prepared this sermon, my intention was to preach about these three friends, Mary, Thomas, and Peter. And in my notes, I have friend one, friend two, and friend three. And so I was going to stand up here today and talk for a little bit about how he helped Mary out of her loneliness, Thomas out of his doubt, and Peter out of his guilt. That's what I was planning on doing. In the first service this morning, and I can't, you can't recreate something that God does, but I'm just trying to explain what God just did about an hour and a half ago in this room. As I was getting in to talking about Mary and her loneliness and her feelings of sadness, it was just like I felt the Spirit of God say to me, don't even talk about Thomas and his doubt. Don't even talk about Peter and his guilt. The focus of this message today needs to be on Mary her loneliness, and her sadness. And so that's what I did. I never got to the second and third uh, things I was wanting to talk about today. We talked exclusively in the first service about how Jesus is the greatest friend that we could ever have because Jesus helps us when we're lonely and Jesus helps us when we're sad. Now, I've been preaching for a long time. And I know God well enough to know and I know the preaching experience well enough to know that, yes, God wants us to prepare, God wants us to plan, God doesn't want us to come out here and just make it up as we go. He, don't, he doesn't want that. He wants preparation. But when a, when a person like me gets in a setting like this and just feels God leading the sermon in a different direction, one of the things I like about preaching is you never really know what it's going to be like till you get out here with God and the people and start doing it. This is why my, my dad doesn't. I don't, we don't write out a manuscript, memorize the manuscript, and come out here on Sunday and quote the manuscript. And I know a lot of great preachers who do that, and I would never be critical of that. But for me, it doesn't work because what I wanted, I view preaching as a romance. You never know exactly how it's going to go until you get out here in the live moment because when you're out here, you're not just out here with your notes. You're out here with the people of God, and you're out here with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is guiding you and leading you. And sometimes, and I would say most of the time in a setting like this, the Spirit of God is helping me remember what I've prepared. 
Maybe he gives me a thought I didn't plan on saying. But nine times out of ten, it's like God says to me, you prepared your sermon, you prayed over it, go preach it, and I'm going to help you do it. But there are those times, and today is one of them, when you, when you get up here planning on doing one thing, and in the heart of the preacher, the speaker, you feel that God is leading you in a different direction that you had planned on going. And what I have learned is this, when that happens... We saw it at 9.30, and I guarantee it's going to happen in this service. There are people here today who need to hear what will be the full emphasis of this message, and that is when you are sad, when you are lonely, when you are anxious, when you are discouraged, and even when you are depressed, isolated, cut off from everything that feels comfortable to you, it is in those times in your life that you discover that Jesus Christ is the greatest friend that you could ever have. And so somebody needs to hear that today, and that's what I'm fixing to talk about for the next few minutes. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 20? We were going to cover this part anyway, but as it turns out, it's the only thing we're going to cover. It's a one-point sermon. And so... uh, I hope that it would be a blessing. But in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, we read about something that happened on the morning of the resurrection. (laughs) This is Easter, the very first Easter Sunday morning. And Jesus is out of that grave. And yet Mary doesn't know it. This is Mary Magdalene. And interestingly enough, years earlier, Jesus had cast, she was demon possessed. And Jesus had cast the demons out of her. And so after he cast the demons out and changed her life and saved her and forgave her and everything, she became one of his followers. This was up in the Galilee area, 70 miles away from Jerusalem where he would be crucified. But she became a follower of Jesus. And she followed him from Galilee down to Jerusalem. She witnessed the crucifixion. She saw him be buried. And she was hoping for a resurrection, but she didn't know how that might work out. Well, in verse 11, here's what it said. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. She's sad. And why is she sad? And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So the stone has been rolled away. The tomb is open. And she's going in there more than likely to anoint the body of Jesus, certainly to pay her respect. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet. And if you've been to Jerusalem and you've been to the garden tomb, you know that when you walk in that tomb, the, 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 the place where his body was laid was on the right, and you can see exactly where his body was laid. And on the top and of the bottom of that, there were angels. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. In other words, somebody's taken the body of Jesus somewhere. And I don't know where they've taken him, and how can I go pay my respect, or how can I do what I came to do? Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So he had not revealed herself yet. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, so Jesus is right in front of her, but she thinks it's the gardener, said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said, this is one of the most tender verses in all the Bible. Jesus said to her, Mary, one word, he called her name. And when Jesus said Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, teacher. And so in this moment, when she is so sad, so lonely, so confused, so anxious, all those things... She's talking to Jesus, thinking it's the gardener. 
Jesus calls her name, and in that moment, her eyes are open, and she's aware, this is Jesus. He's alive. And when he called her name, that's how she knew it was him. And in the speaking of her name, it was like Jesus was saying to her, I know who you are. I know why you're here. I know how you feel. I know everything about you. Now, in my Bible, right above Mary in verse 16, I've written my name, John. So that every time I read this passage, it is a reminder that just like Jesus knew everything about Mary, Jesus knows everything about you. Now, let me just slow that down and make an application here today. Somebody needs to hear this. Whatever it is that you're going through today, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows what your emotional state is. He knows what your circumstances are. He knows about your family dynamic. He knows everything, and if you could just hear today him calling your name, Billy, Jamie, Susan, whatever your name is, God knows it, and when he revealed himself that way to Mary, she knew that he knew, and then she knew that was him, and so that sadness and that weight and that loneliness was all lifted off her shoulder. How does Jesus become our friend? Now, At the beginning of the message, I said we might write Jesus as our Savior. And I think 95% of the people here today, maybe not quite that high, but maybe 95 would be able to say that. But I wonder today, how many here could truly say, yeah, he's my Savior, all right. But I have found Jesus Christ to truly be my friend. How does Jesus become our friend? Well, he becomes our friend when he speaks to us. There's something about Jesus speaking to us, not just speaking to us, but revealing himself to us, making himself real to us. And today, during this worship time, if you could get this, if I could somehow communicate it and you could somehow get it, that Jesus Christ knows everything that you're going through right now, and he not only knows, he is with you. He not only knew who Mary was and what she was feeling, he was with her. He joined her in that, and that's when Jesus became real to me. I think about times in my life when Jesus has been unusually real to me. I mentioned, I told a story last week how when I was a freshman at Baylor, and I was very homesick. I missed my family. I missed my friends. I missed my church. I missed everything that was familiar to me. And for me, one of the greatest experiences about college wasn't just who I met and what I learned. One of the greatest experiences about my four years in Waco was that Jesus became more real to me than he had ever been because during those four years, Jesus was really all I had. I mean, I had plenty of friends, but I'm saying he became something to me that he never had been before. I had never known him that way. Well, time went by and In 1992, I graduated from Baylor, and I moved up to Fort Worth, about an hour and a half up the road, and I enrolled in seminary, Southwestern Seminary, and I began my three-year experience there working on my master's degree. Well, when I moved to Fort Worth, I was excited to be in seminary and learn all that I was going to learn and meet the people I would meet, some of these professors I had heard about all my life, and now they were going to be my professors, and so I was excited about that. But when I moved up to Fort Worth, I experienced something that I never had experienced. Now, when I started my college life, as I said last week, I was homesick. Well, when I started my seminary life, I wasn't homesick because I'd been away from home so long. That that didn't apply anymore. But I'll tell you what I was. I was lonely. In fact, I was lonelier in Fort Worth than I was in Waco. And the reason is, several reasons. One of the reasons was, when I was in college... 
and you know how this is in college, most everybody is single. And so all your friends are basically a different version of you. I mean, you, you have everything in common with everybody because you're all single, you're, you're going through life together, and you have all that in common. Well, when I got to seminary, it was the opposite. Most everybody up there was married. And so I, of course, was single, and I thought, man, this is, this is, a little, this is throwing me off a little bit because, you know, all my friends that I go to class with, like at the end of the day, they're going home to their, to their family and, and so on, and, and I'm just going home to my party. And it, just, it was a different dynamic. And, and to compound that, I was missing people I had gone through Baylor with, and, and I had gotten very you know, comfortable with, with those friendships. And now I'm in, in, in Fort Worth, and, and I just really felt lonely. In fact, I went through, I don't know that you would call this depression. I don't know. I mean, I don't know when, when, when loneliness and sadness and even strong discouragement... I don't know when that shifts into depression. I'm not exactly sure what that line is. There is a line. But I'll just tell you this. For me, I had trouble sleeping. First time in my life I'd ever had trouble sleeping. I had trouble eating. I lost about 15 pounds because I just lost my appetite. I couldn't concentrate. I would go to class. The professor would be giving a lecture. My mind was out. I mean, I, would just, I couldn't follow it. And then I would go to my apartment at night to read And maybe you've had this. I would read the same page ten times, and I would think, "Well, I don't remember. I've read it ten times. I still don't know what I just read." I I couldn't concentrate. It was a very difficult time for me. And this went on for quite a few months. Well, one Thursday night, this was in April of 1993. So this has been 28 years ago. I had had dinner in 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 my apartment, and I was getting ready to go to the library to study for the night. And so I. Got my backpack and zipped it up and got all my books and so on. And I walked out the door, closed the door behind me, locked it. And I was walking down this long outside hall, kind of like a porticoche type thing for walking. And I was going to the library. Probably for the first time in my life, it was not the first time that I had heard the voice of God, but the first time in my life that I felt God impress something on me quite like this. And here's what it was. It's was like, not, not audibly, but in my heart. It's like God said, John, go back in your apartment. Get a notebook, get a pen, sit down, and I'm going to give you some things to write down. This is what I've been teaching you, or what I've been trying to teach you for these last three or four months while you have been up here feeling so lonely, so isolated, so on an island. This is why I've allowed you to go through this. And so I went in my apartment, and I just started writing things down. And I wrote six things, six things that God had taught me. And when I finished writing that down and reading over that list and thinking about what was happening, what God was saying to me, I just remember thinking, well, this is why. This is why I've been through what I've been through up here and feeling so lonely. And I remember I went over and got out on my knees at the foot, at the ottoman of one of my chairs in there, and I prayed. And I just said, God, it makes sense to me now. This is what you're doing in my life. And here's, I'm telling a long story today because somebody needs to hear this. When I prayed that prayer and said, God, now it makes sense. When God revealed these things to me, the, the, the sadness, the loneliness, the discouragement, if it was depression, whatever it was, in a split second, it just lifted off of me. And for the first time in three or four months, I just felt completely like myself. My mind was clear. I was excited about life. I was glad to be in seminary. I, I just, I just, it was just lifted. That the cl- in that moment, the cloud was lifted. Now, why do I make, tell that part of the story? Here's why. Because there's somebody listening to this message today, 
and you're under a cloud, man, a cloud of sadness and loneliness. And you say, John, I can identify with how you felt. Like everybody else is living in one world, and you're living over here in another world, and you're having a tough time knowing how to live in this other world. And I understand. What I'm saying is today, just like that, God can lift that off of you, and God can help you to see that He has allowed you to be in the situation you're in right now so that you can know Him in a deeper way than you've ever known Him and so that He can become, He's already your Savior, He's already your Lord, He's already your protector, provider, and peace, but so that He can become your friend in a way that you've never known Him to be your friend. Like when I started Baylor and He became of more real to me than ever, yes, but at Fort Worth, in Fort Worth, it was even magnified. And he became my friend in a much deeper way. It's interesting. That was in April of 1993. A few days or a week or two after that, my dad called me and he said, John, I'm going to be away. Our church is at the old location in, uh, on the other side of Pasadena back then. He said, can you drive to Pasadena this weekend and preach the Sunday night sermon? And so I did. I drove down here, I preached Sunday night, and that, that was so in me. This thing about what God had, lessons he had taught me in the valley. I never will forget that night. 28 years ago this month, I, before I ever got on staff at this church, I preached a sermon called Victory in the Valley. And I, in that sermon, I listed out all six of those things. Well, after the sermon, one of the members of our church, a man named C.L. Ellis, who used to be the chief of police for Pasadena Independent School District. He's in heaven now. But at that time, that's what he was doing. He heard that sermon that night, and he wrote down all six things that I said to him, and he typed that up, printed it out, and put it on a little card, laminated it, and started passing it out to people. I can remember how good that made me feel. I thought, I finally said something good enough that somebody felt like they could write it down and laminate it, because that, that, that had certainly never happened before. But it did then, and somehow... One of those little cards got to my grandfather, my dad's dad, in Georgia. And I never knew about this. But years after he died, my dad and his sister, my aunt, had divvied up who got what. And my dad ended up getting my grandfather's wallet. And, and this is it right here because years ago he gave this wallet to me. He said, John, I'm going to give you Big Pop's wallet. And he said, I thought you might enjoy this. Well, of course, immediately I opened it up to see how much money Big Pop had left me. And here it is. That's my grandfather's, that's what I got from him. One dollar is what he left me in his wallet. But uh, it has his driver's license on it. And in the back of this wallet, and I never knew my granddad had it, he had this little card. Things to remember in the valley. And I guess my dad probably gave it to him, but I just remember thinking, I guess when my grandmother died, he found comfort and he found solace in that. And I'm not going to preach the six things that I learned in that, but I will tell you the very first lesson. How many times have you heard me through the years stand up here and say, whatever you're going through, remember this, God is in control. How many times have you heard me say that? Hundreds of times. When did I learn that? That Thursday night in April, 1993, in my apartments, the first thing God told me to write to John, the reason I've allowed you to go through this, I've got to teach you at this age. I was about 23 then. I've got to teach you at this age. No matter what you go through out there in life, I'm absolutely in control. And I'll tell you the second thing God taught me. And I wrote it down on, in that, on that card. And that is this. In our valley experiences in life, even when we lose those people and those things that are so dear to us, it is in those moments that we learn 
that Jesus Christ is all we need. Now, I want you to hear that today. You say, John, I'm so glad you're only talking about this first point because you, sadness, loneliness, isolation, feeling like I don't fit in. Like that's how I felt. I thought, I just don't fit in. I fit in it, Baylor man. I don't fit in in this world. God said, I'm going to teach you how to fit in. You fit in by finding your identity in your relationship with me, not by being exactly like everybody else in this world with you. That's not, you don't fit in by conforming. You fit in by having a relationship with me where, I, where you find your completeness in me and you find your identity in me. God was giving me things in April of 1993 that have sustained me for the years since then. They're the anchors of my life. And so I'm saying to you today, friend, listen. Jesus Christ wants to become the dearest friend that you have ever had. And he can if you will realize that he understands everything about you. He understands things about you your spouse doesn't understand. He understands things about you your best friend doesn't understand. Let me tell you something. He understands things about you you don't understand. Because there's sometimes things in me I think, God, I don't understand this in my own self. And I'm sure he says, no, I know you don't, but I do. Because I made you and I know you inside out. And, and, we, and, we can, and we get to that place where we say, not only does he understand, he is right here with me in this. Now, I want to say one other thing. I know this is a little different, but I want to say one other thing before I end this. You know, friends, I, I, I've been thinking as I prepared this sermon last week about my own friends. I just feel so blessed to have a lot of friends. And many of you, now some of you I never have met, so I, I'm going to just consider you the friend I don't know yet. But most of you I have met and I do know very well, and I consider, I consider you my friends. So, I mean, we've been together so long, I consider most all of you my friends. And friends are a tremendous blessing from God. But if we're not careful as we go through life, we can depend on our friends in ways that we should only depend on God. And that's why, like when I moved to college and then I moved to seminary, and now I'm having a, you know, my friend world is all upside down. I'm, I'm leaving friends, losing friends, moving from friends. That's what God was teaching me. The greatest thing God taught me at seminary wasn't Hebrew or Greek, because I've forgotten most all that, to be honest with you. The greatest thing God taught me in seminary was that He understands everything about me. He's in control of my life, and He will never leave me and never forsake me. He's my dearest friend. And yet, sometimes we lean on our friends. I was reading a devotional last week by Oswald Chambers. In fact, if you're still watching our weekday devotionals online or uh, on Facebook that my dad and I are sending out Monday through Friday. One of the, I made a devotional yesterday that will play in the next few days about this particular devotion from Oswald. Oswald Chambers said this, and I think this would be a good way to wrap this sermon up. He said, in all of our lives, we have been blessed to have many different lights. L-I, I couldn't spell lights in the first sermon. Is it L-I-G-H-T-S? L-I-G, it is a G, comes before the H, right? L-I-G-H-T-S. And um, we have family members, they're lights for us. We have friends, they're lights for us. I had a text from a friend I went through college and seminary with uh, both. One of my dearest friends in the world, she and her husband live in Atlanta. And because of the pandemic, they're not going back to church yet. She watched the first service online and sent me a text between services and she said thank you for being one of my bulbs 
Thank you for being one of my bulbs. And she had a little picture of a light. Well, I'm just now learning about emojis. I sent her a bunch of pictures of lights back after that. I said, thank you for being one of my bulbs, too. I sent her five. I gave her. I did better than she did on the emojis. You know, we have these lights. Our family, our friends are lights. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, as we go through life, if we live long enough, we're going to find that some of our lights grow dim. And some of our lights even go out. The people that we have depended on to brighten our lives and to to light our world, they move, they die. And from our perspective, their light has gone out. Oswald says this, when that happens, here's what you need to do. You need, instead of calling your friend or going to your family member's house, what you have to do, and maybe for the first time in your life, you have to look God in the face for yourself. And in that moment, you discover that He is the only light you have that will never grow dim, that will never disappear, and that will never go out. That's Jesus. Now, for those of us who have lost lights, my grandparents, for example, and we all have, I want to just say this today. If they were saved, that light's not out. That light just moved to heaven. That light's just brightening up heaven, if that's even possible, making heaven even brighter. But from our perspective, the light's out. If you, this is a good way to sum this whole thing up today. You want to make Jesus your best friend? You want to have a relationship with Jesus that's not just theological and theoretical and in your head. You want to move Jesus 18 inches from your head down into your heart and into your life. Here's how you do it. You look him in the face and say, God, these other lights have faded away. You're the only person I have that will never leave me. That The only light I have that will never grow dim. And so, God, I don't know how to do it because this friendship with you is going to be different than my friendship with everybody else because I can see everybody else. I can reach out and touch everybody else. I can hear everybody else. And, Lord, with you, it's not that way. I can't see you with my eyes. I can't hear you with my ears. And I can't touch you with my hands. So, Lord, you're going to have to help me, Lord, to build this relationship by faith. And in the process, God, I'm asking you to become more real to me than you've ever been. And I'm asking you to be more than my Savior. I'm asking you to be my friend.